You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Welcome back, Finchwood listeners. It's been about five months since the last episode came out. In hindsight, by the way, I do realize the irony of making an episode about time management and then disappearing for several months. Really, those two things are related. What happened was that I finished making Season 3, Episode 11, and my wife suggested that I should take some of my own advice and catch up on the other things going on in my life. So, what's weirdly convenient about that is I'm precisely halfway through the topics that I had originally come up with for this season. So what basically ended up happening was that I took a mid-season break, and now we are back. Speaking of the season, by now anyone who's been listening along has probably noticed a pattern. I usually start every episode with a question along the lines of, how do we do this or that thing that can help us to love God and to serve him better? And then what I do is I proceed to systematically avoid answering those questions with specific guidelines on how to actually do the thing. Now that's intentional because truthfully, If you want those kinds of answers, do this, do that, you can find all kinds of self-help books and blogs and whole podcasts telling you specifically how to run your life. But the problem is that the specific details of how each of these spiritual growth practices should play out will look different in each of our lives because we are all different. So I'm not going to tell you exactly how to pray, how to read the Bible, or how to worship God. What I can do instead What I'm trying to do is highlight the principles that govern each of these areas, like how does the Bible address time management practices, to use the previous episode as an example, or why is it important to forgive others, how do we figure this thing out, what are the rules, and I think even more importantly we're asking what guidelines that are currently being taught by Christians are actually not in the Bible and therefore need to be re-evaluated and re-categorized as just advice rather than commandments coming down from on high. That's the goal, and I hope that it's made sense so far. In that same vein, I do have one favor to ask of you. So far, I've covered 10 topics in this season, and if you count today's episode, I have 10 more planned out. But I'd also like to make sure that I'm covering topics you actually want to hear. Basically, what practices within Christianity do you think somebody might need a practical how-to guide about? Please send your suggestions along with any other feedback you might have to the contact information in the episode description. And remember that the only stupid questions are the ones that never get asked. Anyway, moving along here, today we are talking about finances. How do we handle money as Christians? For starters, let's just talk about money management in general. Now, in the ancient times that the Bible was written in, wealth wasn't measured in coins and bills. Yes, they did sometimes trade in gold and silver, but for the most part, it would be measured in farmland, in crops, and especially in livestock. So, if you paid a guy to put a roof on your house, you might pay him in chickens. With that being said, in modern times, I'm going to limit this conversation today to money, but just know that everything else you or I might own falls under the same principles I'm about to describe, because more broadly we're talking about wealth, things that we own. Now for Christians, this ends up being a topic that we 
oftentimes shy away from because of this misguided belief that money or being wealthy is somehow inherently evil. There is a commonly cited Bible verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now that is true, and it's something we do need to take into account as we look into this topic. Greed of any kind, whether it's for power or wealth or physical possessions, or anything else really, can be a powerful force that inspires people to commit all kinds of evil actions. So this Bible verse does serve as a very real warning that we have to keep ourselves from falling in love with what we own so that it doesn't begin to control us. In short, money can be addictive, so that is something to watch out for. However, people often misquote this scripture by saying that money is the root of all evil, when that's not what the verse said at all. We missed a couple of words there. Money isn't good or evil, it's just a tool. Think of it like a hammer. If you pick up a hammer, you have the option to use it for good or for evil, depending on the motives of your heart. And money is the exact same way. Depending on the motives of the person using it, it can be incredibly useful, it can help us live our lives, it allows us to be generous to others, and in short, it just gets things done. On the other hand, we do have the opportunity to use money for evil. But it's not the money's fault, it's the person's fault, and that's why it's so important to have conversations about this topic, both with God and with each other. Because there's safety and accountability to be had in just talking about this in the light of day. And I think that's why Jesus talked about money more than almost any other subject. But many followers of Jesus today unfortunately end up feeling guilty about money, or they feel like it's an inferior thing to think about or that being associated with it can somehow diminish their spirituality. And as a result, they end up being financially illiterate, or even worse, they set themselves up to be taken advantage of. Many of us just end up believing the first bit of teaching we actually hear on it, whether it was good teaching or not. But the only way to recognize a lie when you come across one is to already know what's true. So today, let's talk about money. It's worth mentioning that most of this financial management conversation boils down to being savvy in ways that are far more practical than spiritual, like spending and saving wisely, making good investments, and so forth. It doesn't glorify God in the slightest, for his people to pointlessly lose whatever money they earn. So, the first principle here is really just to seek good advice, even outside the spiritual arena, for how to become and remain financially healthy. For that, my wife and I go to a financial coach. Her name is Amberly, and she specializes in helping couples figure out how to not only manage their money, but to do it together. Along those lines, she's been helping us to navigate the parts of this conversation that we don't fully understand. If you're in need of someone like that, you could go to combinedfinances.com and check out what she has to offer, and I will make sure that a link to that website ends up in the show notes. As an incentive, Combined Finances is offering the first 90 days of coaching absolutely free for the first two listeners who contact them and mention this podcast. So, thank you, Amberly. And I should mention, that's not even a paid advertisement. I actually just think that she's good at what she does and that she can be helpful to you as well. Now, because general financial advice is available from experts like Amberly, who exist outside the discipleship conversation, I'm not going to say too much about it today other than a few brief points. First, the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of debt. In general, going into debt is a great way to lose money, 
because it enables you to spend more than you really have, only to have to pay it back later. On the other hand, it's also pretty cautious about lending money to others, because that situation carries so much temptation to abuse the power that you then have over that other person. So in general, it's best to avoid borrowing or lending money, which in turn means that we're strongly encouraged to live within our means. A lot of teachers will kind of turn this into a moral issue, but I don't see that in the Bible. Yes, if you are intentionally wasteful, I think there's a point where it becomes a matter of character, but a lot of people end up in debt through no fault of their own, so if you're the type to feel guilty about having to borrow money, you can stop beating yourself up about it. Before the mid-season break, we talked a lot about the agricultural analogies that the Bible uses to describe appropriate rhythms of working and resting. And there's a similar analogy to be found in what a farmer does with the crops that come in from a year's harvest. Obviously, part of that crop is meant to be eaten. That's the farmer's food for the coming year. But, and this is my second brief point, part of that same crop is also meant to be set aside to be planted for the next year's harvest, which is an investment in the future. In more modern terms, that's the difference between living paycheck to paycheck, or worse yet, credit card to credit card, versus having a cushion available for a rainy day down the road. Because, let's face it, nobody is immune to life's little surprises. Now, if you don't currently have any savings, you're not a bad person. But if you can build some savings, I highly recommend doing so, and I believe so does scripture. A third brief teaching point before we really get into the meat of what I want to talk about here is that it's good to work hard and earn what you can, so long as you don't burn yourself out in the process. The book of Proverbs in particular is full of wise sayings about working while you have the ability so that you don't go hungry later on when you can't. And once again, the Bible doesn't present these ideas as rules exactly, so much as that they are good advice. I want to move on to what this episode is really about, which is the spiritual discipline of generosity. Because this whole money conversation isn't really about having boatloads of so much money that you don't know what to do with it. It's not even really about having enough money to get by and to survive. It's about having enough to be able to give some of it away to others. Because we believe that God loves us, and because we believe he's generous and that he's kind, we want to emulate those qualities about him. As I've mentioned time and time again on this podcast, the main goal of a Christian's life is to become more like Jesus. God doesn't need our money, but what he's actually interested in is our hearts. Really, the biggest reason for us to practice generosity as Christians is that when we give away what we have, we learn to trust that God will provide for our needs no matter what. And that love of money that the Bible warns us can result in all forms of evil is harder to get sucked into when you're willing to give it freely to someone else. A second purpose for giving is that it can be an act of worship. Several episodes ago, we talked about how worship comes down to sacrifice, that it's a matter of voluntarily giving something that's valuable to you to acknowledge that God is even more valuable. The most basic and recognizable way to do that isn't actually singing or jumping up and down or lighting a candle. It's actually through our giving. Jesus even said it, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. In other words, you spend money on the things you truly care about, and God is no exception. We can also give money and other goods as a way of participating in the good work that God wants done in the world. There are 
billions of poor people out there that God cares deeply about, and His method of providing for them is to have one of His people, those of us that He has entrusted with various blessings, to provide for those needs on His behalf. The great thing is that as you continue to learn and to follow God's ways for handling your finances, the more you practice sacrificial generosity, the more you become someone that God can trust to properly handle larger and larger quantities of money, not because you've earned them, but because you won't be tempted to misuse them for your own gain. Now, some people preach that last point as if it can be used as a way to bribe God, or as if God is a Xerox machine for our money, and that gets a little dicey sometimes. Here's where motives become critically important. If you find that you're excited about being God's ministry partner and doing the most good that you can, your heart is probably in the right place. But on the other hand, if you find that you're giving just so that God will give you more money, you definitely have more work to do, whether it's in surrendering greedy impulses to God or in dealing with the fear that he won't provide in the future. So in summary, we have a lot of great reasons to give as Christians. But I recognize that everything I've said so far doesn't really deal with the most basic how-to questions, those ones that I'm unwilling to give very specific life advice about because everyone's situation is so different. If you were to walk into any church in the U.S. today and ask them what they teach about giving, the vast majority of them would tell you about a traditional concept called tithing. The word tithing comes from an old English term meaning one-tenth or ten percent. The idea is that you're expected, or some would even say commanded in scripture, to give 10% of your income back to God as an offering of thanks for his generosity and provision. At the risk of sounding like one of those awful word problems that we all remember from third grade math class, if Johnny has 30 apples, tithing means that he's supposed to give three of them to his pastor. A lot of Christian money management experts recommend that same guideline, whatever you make, Set aside 10% because that supposedly belongs to God. But where did this idea of 10% even come from? The answer to that question lies all the way back in the book of Genesis, in which Abraham wins this strategic battle against an enemy of his. Which is kind of weird because we don't usually see him as a military figure. But after the battle, he gives 10% of the plunder to this local priest of God named Melchizedek. A few centuries later, we see the same 10% figure showing up in Leviticus chapter 27, which is near the middle of the code of laws that God gave to Moses as he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. In it, there was a stipulation that supporting the temple and its sacrificial offerings was the responsibility of the people. And so they should set aside 10% of their produce, whether that's cattle or grain or fruit or whatever else, as an offering to God. That same figure is then repeated a few more times throughout the Bible, usually in reference to what was going on in Leviticus 27. And so, there is this precedent in the Bible that 10% is a decent amount to give, but sometimes people treat it as if it's this magical number, to the point that only giving 9% makes you a horrible, disobedient sinner. If you just want to pick an arbitrary number, you could go with 10%. I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not going to specifically recommend it here because I find that automatically setting the bar at 10% right out the gate sets this whole conversation about giving and generosity off on the wrong path. For instance, it turns our giving into an obligation or something that's motivated even by fear. I have heard this message preached more than once 
as if your tithe is the only thing standing between you and divine judgment and calamity. Now there's a technical term for that kind of setup. It's called a protection racket. That's a type of extortion that's common among organized crime syndicates. The way it works is some guy hires thugs to threaten you, and then the same guy will demand money in exchange for, quote, protection from those very same thugs. And that's not how this works at all. God isn't a mobster or a cosmic loan shark, and if you don't tithe, you're not at risk of getting your kneecaps busted by an angel. There's no lightning bolt or locust swarm or plague that an angry God is just waiting to rain down on the heads of anyone whose checkbook doesn't get opened on a Sunday morning. Because that's absolutely not who God is. A second way that this very familiar teaching point on the subject of charitable giving and 10% twists the conversation and sends it down the wrong path is simply that this is the old way, the way of legalism and fulfilling your duty simply because it's what's expected, and then doing nothing more. What you may find surprising is that the New Testament never once mentions 10% as the standard amount that Christians are expected to give out of their income. But then that begs the question, what actually is the New Testament standard? What I find interesting in the teaching of Jesus is that he never lowers the standard of what's being expected of us. Even while he removes the sense of guilt and obligation that surrounds the law, he still manages to raise the bar by getting at the character and the principles that are supposed to be developed behind the scenes of each commandment. For instance, Moses said, Thou shalt not murder. But then Jesus comes along and says, If you're so much as angry with someone, you're as guilty as a murderer. Or how about, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus raises the stakes by saying, Even lusting after someone means that in your heart, you've committed adultery. And the list goes on. So, following that same type of reasoning, I have to believe the bar has also been raised in the area of generosity. People used to owe 10% to God, but what's really going on is that everything you have, everything you own, belongs to God anyway. It came from Him. What I mean by that isn't that your entire paycheck has to go into the offering plate at church, or that God intends to leave you penniless. It's not like He's broke or that He needs your support. What he allows you to earn is a gift from him, and he wants you not only to be sustained by it, but to be able to enjoy it. From God's perspective as a good father, feeding and housing and clothing his children is a wonderful use for his money. And then on top of that, so is charitable giving. Finally, if you want to get really technical, the 10% rule isn't the best starting point because it's not even really the Old Testament standard. Along with that 10% that Moses told his people to give toward the maintenance and salaries of the temple workers, there was also 10% that went toward supporting the government of the nation of Israel, which I guess would be analogous to our income taxes. In addition to all of that, another one-third of one-tenth was collected as an offering to the poor. Plus, there was a variety of additional offerings and sacrifices that people might give freely throughout the year based on their circumstances. So in total, more than 23% of a person's income was expected to go to things that were bigger than themselves. In terms of Johnny and his apples from earlier, he's now giving away at least 7 out of 30. And if there is a biblical standard for giving, that actually might be it rather than 10%. Speaking of taxes, I know that there's a significant portion of our society who resent the fact that governments conduct their own charity work. 
and so they feel like they're being asked to give twice, both at church and then again every April 15th. The reasoning here usually goes something along the lines of, I was already forced to give to the poor, so now I've done my part, I refuse to do anything more. The problem is that when we complain about it, from a heart perspective, what we're basically saying is that we wish that work wasn't getting done. Maybe someday we'll take a closer look at what the role of government can and should be in addressing those needs. But I should at least point out that, historically, the reason a lot of those programs exist is because Christians saw that a need wasn't being met. The church either wasn't being the church or didn't have the resources by itself to fix the problem. And the way that they chose to do something about it was by petitioning their leaders to set those programs up in the first place. And ultimately, I suspect that God is more concerned with making sure that people he loves are clothed and fed and sheltered than he is with how much say we had in making it happen. I also hear a lot of Christians complaining about having to fund programs that they don't care about or that in some cases may be completely opposed to what's written in the Bible, and that is a valid complaint, but I do find it telling that Jesus encouraged his followers to pay their taxes without resistance. And whatever evil you think your government might be currently involved in, chances are it's nothing compared to the Roman Empire of the first century. So, if in good conscience Jesus can pay his taxes and thereby unwillingly fund the atrocities of his time, we can too. If you don't like it, write a letter to your representative in Congress. So, this all basically boils down to what's going on in your heart. Doing the bare minimum to avoid going to prison because we didn't pay our taxes isn't the same as freely giving out of kindness and care for a fellow human being. Moving forward from there, it's between you and God. The amount that you give is a decision that you and he are going to have to make together. Maybe you are in a position where you can give 10%, and that's great. But maybe God will guide you to give the 23%, like we talked about before. On the other hand, maybe you don't have any income, or maybe you're just barely making ends meet. If that's you, there's a story in the book of Mark that I hope will be encouraging to you. Jesus was visiting the temple in Jerusalem, and someone came to give a large offering into the container. Everyone heard the jingle of all the coins and thought, now there's a righteous person because they gave a lot of money to the temple. But then after that, in comes this poor widow who literally had two cents to her name, and she gave both of them. What's interesting is Jesus applauds her instead of the rich person. But why is that? It's because the first one gave out of their abundance. In other words, it didn't really cost them much of anything in terms of practical spending power. The widow, on the other hand, gave out of her lack. This was a real sacrifice, and Jesus honored it in a special way. She didn't give much, it didn't seem profound to anyone else, but what she gave was precious. Whatever your financial situation is, I encourage you to establish a habit of regularly giving in a way that's significant to you, whatever that looks like. I'm not asking you to go bankrupt, but I am asking you to give in a way that really expresses to God that you trust him with your money, and that you're able to thank him and honor him as the source of everything you need and as the king who's deserving of your worship. Now, that story that I just told from the book of Mark leads us right into our last question for this episode, which is, where are we supposed to give? In other words, once we figure out what portion of our income God is leading us to give away, who exactly do we give it to? 
In Bible times, this was a simple question. There was one temple, and that was designated as the proper place to give your offerings. Based on that, a lot of the strict 10% crowd will insist that your tithe belongs to the local church you belong to. But I don't really see that playing out in the New Testament either. As Christians, we believe that we are the temple that God lives in, and we are the priesthood who represent him to the outside world. And rather than it being a building or an organization, the Bible defines the church as a community of people. So technically, any group of believers who are doing God's work, whether or not that's your local church, could be the legitimate recipients of your tithes and offerings. The point, once again, is that this is a very individualized decision. My ultimate advice is to do whatever God tells you to do. Giving some of it to your church is a great idea. If you like, you could even give to help support this podcast. I do have a Patreon set up. If you just search for Finchwood, you'll find me. But in the spirit of how that 23% would be distributed according to Moses, you could also give some of it to support your local food bank. I can also highly recommend organizations like the Salvation Army or Samaritan's Purse or Operation Blessing, folks who have a long history of helping those in need. Basically, the principle here is to give whatever and wherever God tells you to. And beyond that, there is no hard and fast rule about where you have to give. A frequent question that often accompanies this topic is, what's our responsibility if we give something away and the person misuses it? The classic example that people usually bring up is giving someone on the street a few dollars for the bus and then worrying that they're going to use it to buy drugs or alcohol. However, the thing about giving gifts is that once you hand something over, it becomes theirs. And that means that they are responsible before God for what they do with it. Now, if I were to give every listener to this podcast a car, by the way, I'm not Oprah, so I'm not going to do that. But if I did, I wouldn't get to tell you how to drive the car, nor do I get to demand that you have to follow a strict oil change schedule or that you can't run it into a brick wall. If I get to dictate how the gift is supposed to be used, then I'm still acting as if I own it, as if I have a share in what's said about it, and I don't. On the flip side, if you never change the oil and the car breaks down, that's on you. It's between you and God how to deal with that situation. I did what I was supposed to do, which was simply to practice generosity. Going back to that hypothetical person experiencing homelessness, whatever they choose to do with that money isn't my responsibility. But what goes on in my heart definitely is. Am I going to withhold that gift because I've prejudged them to be unworthy of it? Or am I going to give anyway? My hope is that I would give anyway. Now, I'll admit that this is not exactly a black and white issue, that there's a more complicated side of it, where you shouldn't continually throw your generosity away on people and situations who aren't going to appreciate it or manage it well. There is a place in this topic for caution and thoughtfulness, but it's so that you can maximize the benefit that your gift will bring to someone. And a lot of the time, as Christians, we get into trouble with this because we'll give to an organization or a church, and then we'll see them using the money for something that we wouldn't immediately have thought of, or that doesn't fit into our vision for where this organization should be going. And the fact is that our giving doesn't make us voting shareholders who get to then dictate how this organization is going to operate in the future. Now, if you're having trouble deciding where to give, if you want to make sure that it's going to be used well, my advice is that you ask God for wisdom. 
The book of James promises that if you ask him for wisdom in any situation, he will give it to you. Maybe the thing to do with that stranger wasn't to give them $2. Maybe it would be better to buy them a $20 bus pass. If they're hungry, yes, you could always throw more money at them, but what may be even better is taking them to dinner and hearing their story. Then, by the way, you're being generous with more than just money. And on that note, God doesn't just want us to be generous through charitable organizations that we can claim on our taxes. He also wants us to be generous in our personal lives. Be the kind of person who might give a gift to a friend for no reason, or one who tips their waiter more than they really deserved just for the sake of being nice and representing a God of generosity well. He's been abundantly gracious toward each of us, so we can and should do the same thing for others. So this week, go and put that into practice. And join me next time when we'll talk about a different way that we can be generous, with our gifts and our time and our talents, the things that God has placed inside of us to serve others. That episode should be coming in two weeks, so I will see you then. Meanwhile, welcome back, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time!